0: Welcome to Ego Check with EADM. I'm your host, Michael Mallon, and joining me today is Matt Forbeck. He is a New York Times best selling author and game designer. He's been in those fields for, I think it's fair to say, decades, uh, working on properties such as Dungeons and Dragons, Star Wars, Marvel, Halo, uh, has really been uh, very active. And how I've been uh, engaged in his work recently. Is the game system, shotguns, and sorcery, which is, I think, before started as a, a f- series of novels. So I'm excited to get into all that with Matt here today. Matt, thank you for your time.
1: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, so we we live close by, I think, relatively. Minnesota, I believe you're in Wisconsin. Yeah, southern Wisconsin, but yeah, it's it. Can't. I'm closer <laughs> to Illinois than I am Minnesota. <laughs> so. It's a bit of a hike. Uh, So I really appreciate you, uh, you know, tolerating the rivalry and and giving me some (laughs) of your time here today. Of course. Um, So, yeah, I've been tweeting about shotguns and sorcery for I'm a slow reader and there's other stuff going on with the pandemic. So I haven't been able to go through the book as quickly as I would like, but have been going through the setting, the cypher system rules. It's really quite a unique, I I think, uh, environment for a, a tabletop role playing game. And I know you've been designing games for quite a while. You've been writing for a long time. Where did the genesis of Dragon City come from? Like, how were you influenced to get there?
1: Right. Uh, well, Dragon City, which is the setting for shotguns and sorcery, is uh, kind of a blend of a couple of my favorite authors, which would be J.R.R. R. Tolkien and Raymond Chandler. Right. Uh, so Tolkien, obviously, being the father of modern fantasy, as we understand it as a genre, And Raymond Chandler being the guy, uh, if not one of the inventors, one of the refined uh, practitioners of uh, noir detective fiction. So from back in the 20s and 30s. And also wrote a lot of movies and other stuff. Very good writer. Um, But what happened is those are two things I've always enjoyed. and One of my influences or two of my influences. Uh, Back in 1999, I think or so, Uh, or, yeah, or 2000, Wizards of the Coast put out a call for a world hunt. They were looking for a new, brand new Dungeons and Dragons world and they were looking for fans to contribute ideas and I pitched in a few ideas for that and I'd already been writing for them for uh, something like eight or nine years at that point as a freelance writer and editor and and designer and I said, well, I'll toss my hat and ring and uh, I didn't get it but fortunately my friend Keith Baker did and his world became Eberron which was uh, a big hit for Dungeons and Dragons for many years. Big fan yeah. favorite, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And for which I wrote a trilogy of novels uh, about the same time that Keith was writing his original tri- trilogy of novels. So I'm a big Eberron fan. I had a lot of fun with it. Um, but, you know, meanwhile, I had this idea for a setting that I just kind of tossed aside. And I said, well, geez, I can't just let it sit there. It's kind of gnawing at me. So I turned around and he sold it to a company called Mongoose. Uh, publications and productions, I forget which, uh, which was one of the D- big D 20 publishers back in the day in about 2001. And I, when I say sold it, I licensed it to them. I said, I'm going to license this to you for an RPG. I'm going to do fiction comics, whatever the hell else I want to do with it. <laughs> and you guys will take the RPG and then you're going to hire me to write it better. Yeah. What a good deal. Right. Perfect. Um, and they bet, I was like, okay, great, we'll do this. Um, and then my wife got pregnant with quadruplets, uh, like two months after we made the deal. Wow. And I'm like, well, I called him up and said, you know, Matt sprang over there. I said, man, I'm not going to be able to really devote a whole lot of time to this in the near future. So uh, it eventually just ended up that we let the deal uh, expire and nothing came of it because obviously I just had too much on my plate. Um, So I let Shotguns and Sorcery uh, just kind of sit fallow for about a decade. And then Robin Laws, who's another... uh, Famous role-playing game designer. Yes, uh, had this theory, this literary theory. He's done a lot of stuff like Hamlet's hit points and uh, a couple other books about analyzing how stories work from a not just from a game designer's point of view, but from a mechanical point of view, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, one of his theories was that not every hero in fiction is like you would normally think of. They, he calls them the dramatic hero. That's one one that you, the traditional hero, where they go into a story. Uh, things happen, they change and evolve and become better, and by the end of the story, they become a new person, right? Right. Harry uh, Potter, so
0: Luke Skywalker, that type of hero's journey.
1: Exactly, right? They've had this kind of event that's happened to them and it's changed them and possibly changed things around them. But Robin pointed out wisely that not every hero works that way, right? Uh, there are a lot of heroes are are less about a specific story and more about episodic stories, right? Uh, you know, just think Star Trek, for instance, or Batman or Sherlock Holmes or James Bond. These are not characters that change, right? These are characters, uh, in his words, that were iconic heroes rather than dramatic heroes. And they didn't change, but they changed the world around them by being true to who they are. Okay. Right. So Robin, uh contacted a bunch of his writer friends and said, would you be interested in writing a story like that for me? And I said, sure. So I thought, hey, shotguns and sorcery, I'll come up with a character that will fit it. Uh, I came up with this detective named Max Gibson who was, uh, who lives down in one of the worst parts of town and had him solve a mystery, right? Very much in the Batman, Sherlock Holmes, etc. cetera uh, type vein. And I enjoyed writing the story. So uh, a year later or later that year, I think Steve Sullivan invited me to commit a story to the uh, Origins. They had an anthology for the Origins Writers uh, slates, whatever the heck they call it. Uh, which I had been participating in for the Origins Game Convention. And I said, sure. So I wrote another one, and then suddenly I'm like, oh, I'm actually enjoying this. Maybe I should do something with this. And then in 2012, I went and seen, and I decided I was going to do this thing called 12 for 12, which was a uh, – I'm a pretty fast writer. When I'm cooking, I'll write about 5,000 words an hour – 5,000 words a day, right? How was it? an hour. That's an impressive. Hour. No, I've never <laughs> written 5,000 words an hour. I, I will actually wow. write uh, – I will regularly clock out 1,000 words an hour when I'm in the flow, right? Uh, now, flow is a hard state to achieve, and you know, if I'm lucky, I get there for four or five hours a day, and then I'm happy, right? And Some days I've managed to get uh, I think my best day ever was 11,000 words, right? Mm-hmm. And some days I don't write anything. It's not like it's a, a religious recipe or anything. So. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew that I could write a b- pretty quickly, so I thought – I'm going to challenge myself to write a dozen novels this year in 2012. I'll call it 12 for 12, and I will write 12 novels this year. Now, to give myself a little bit of a break, I made them shorter novels. They were only 50,000 words as opposed to a lot of genre novels were about 80,000 words, maybe 70,000 words. Uh, and some of them, if you're talking fantasy doorstops, are 120,000 words. But I was, I figured if I wrote three 50,000-word novels, that would be the equivalent of a fantasy uh, doorstop novel So um, mm-hmm. I broke those up into four trilogies and I ran a Kickstarter for each one of them and then wrote the books and the second of those trilogies was uh, Shotguns and Sorcery I did a trilogy that started out with hard times in Dragon City then bad times in Dragon City and then end times in Dragon City and I had a lot of fun writing it uh, the books did really well on Kickstarter uh, we ended up selling them to the public as well the Somebody approached me then and said, Hey, we would like to do an enhanced ebook edition of this book. I said, That sounds like great fun. They had done one for Frankenstein, I believe. Okay. And um, I can't remember the guy's name, but yeah, they had done this other enhanced ebook edition that came with like music and animation and, and audio and all sorts of great stuff, right? And they had hired on an artist and we had gotten some narrators together. And then they ran their second Kickstarter for another slate of these things, and it failed miserably. Mm-hmm. So suddenly the company folded. That wasn't going to happen. We're like, okay, fine. you know, No big deal. But the artist uh, liked the game so much or the idea so much. They came to me and said, we need to do this. I don't know anything about doing these kind of things, but I'd like to do a role-playing game with you. And uh, I put them off for about two or three years saying, you know, I've published role-playing games. I was the president of Pinnacle Entertainment Group. I was one of the co-founders of the company. I've written and developed and published more role-playing games than I want to think about. I'll just do this myself, right? And about after him pestering me for three years, I said, you know what? I'm never going to get around to doing this. It's fine. Um, why don't you do this and I'll just write the stuff and you can take care of all the business parts. And so uh, he ran a Kickstarter for that, I think, in 2015. And uh, it went fairly well. We hit some stretch goals and we uh, he licensed the cipher system from Monty Cook Games mm-hmm. uh, to work with the game, and he hired Rob Schwalb, who's an old friend of mine, to write the uh, the rules for the game. And I just had to write the background, which was great, because that was stuff I either A, was familiar with, or B, was making up on the fly to fit with what I had written before. So, And the best part for him was that he didn't have to worry about getting the writer's stuff approved by anybody else, because obviously I was improving my own ideas as I went. Um, so... Unfortunately, Jeremy ended up having some uh, some personal issues in his family and uh, uh, wasn't able to commit a, a whole lot of time to the game after the Kickstarter happened, so uh, it ended up being delayed for years and years, and finally by the time the game was ready to come out, uh, and it seemed to be more delays, he and I looked at each other. I said, Jeremy, if you want me to, I will just take this off your plate at this point because the license has expired. So rather than extend the license, why don't we just call it quits? I'll Make sure we finish up the writing parts. You'll make sure we finish up the artwork parts and we'll deliver everything for the Kickstarter. And then you know, we'll go our, our separate ways, which is where we are now. So the game came out, uh, went out to backers in early 2020, uh, maybe even late 2019, depending on who it was. And then we released the game to the public in July of 2020. And currently I'm still working on fulfilling some of the other stretch goals, which include things like a Pathfinder conversion, a monster book, a player's guide, uh, an adventure, a few other things, a comic book. And we're in the middle of doing that. We're making some pretty good progress on it, although the pandemic has set us back a bit. It's done that
0: to a lot of people, yes.
1: Yeah, you know, it's it, and people are, you know, fortunately, especially at this point, I mean, it's five years on. They're like, well, when it shows up, it's a fucking miracle. I'm sorry, I, I didn't check with about swearing before this. But...
0: That's okay. I, I can I can bleep it out, no problem.
1: Okay, good. Yeah, <laughs> so,
0: no worries. But, it,
1: it, adds some, it adds some flavor. There you go. I mean, it's a it's a miracle. It's a it's a gift when it shows up at this point, right? Well, one of
0: the things I was looking at last night and in, in the in the book is that the world has its own its own curse words, its own slang. Uh, so it does that, that fits right in there with like <laughs> Dragon Balls and some of the other things that I felt I were <laughs> pretty funny that a, a GM and some of the players could pepper into the game to to make it a little bit more interesting. Yeah, just, just a... listen to you talk about that. I mean, it sounds like a, a whirlwind in some ways, extended over a period of a very long time. <laughs> exactly. uh, where there's these kind of, these false starts, and then something picks up, then it goes sideways, and you know, from from doing these interviews now for a few years, it it almost seems like that's par for the course. Uh, rarely oh. does something go the way as originally planned, and it seems like there's been a, a fair amount of persistence for you with, with this project, and kind of an, a vague question, but why is this world, why is a character like Max, why why is it so important to you
1: to see it through? Well, I mean, at first, I think I was just having fun with it, right? I mean, it was an idea that I liked, and, I, you know, like a lot of writers and a lot of game designers, you, you get a dozen ideas before breakfast, right? Uh, it's not like the ideas are not the hard part. I think I just actually was tweeting with Eric Lang earlier today, and he's talking about how... You know, on a, on a good week, uh, on a regular week, you'll have like one to five decent game ideas. And on an inspired day, you might have up to 10, right? So the ideas are really not the hard part. It's the execution always, right? Um, but the ones that won't let you go, the ones that grab you and say, hey, come back here. I was talking to you. Uh, those are the ones that you end up pursuing. But, you know, if something goes sideways, then you just say, okay, well, I guess it's not going to happen right now. But that doesn't mean it won't ever happen. It's just a matter of time. And you take your time, and you get to it. And, you know, in the time that I've been working on shotguns and sorcery, which is, I guess, 20 years if you really want to go back to it, wow. um, I've, I've done so many other things. I've published a bookshelf worth of books, right? And literally, you have a, a, a full bookshelf worth of books that have my name on the spine. And it's not like any of these things stopped me from doing that. I was having fun doing these other things as well. And the uh, Shotguns and Sorcery also probably shoved off a few other ideas that I've been having, right? <laughs> I've got a game called Brave New World that I published back in 1999 that the rights reverted to me like two or three years ago and I guess two years ago. And I've been trying to get back to doing that for a couple of years now. And I don't know when the heck it's going to happen because things just pop up. They get in the way. You know, Somebody says – uh well you need to do shotguns and sorcery now great or you know Marvel calls up and says hey I got this project for you or DC or Halo or whoever and you know suddenly you're like well I guess I'm doing that for a while instead. And you have to pick and choose what you're interested in and what's going to help you out. Also, I mean to be blunt, this is a way I feed my family. So mm-hmm. uh it's not simply just a, an artistic choice for me, but also a mercenary choice in the sense that if uh I have to choose projects they're gonna keep food on the table. Right.
0: Yeah. And as you were talking, I was going to be one of the questions I asked, which you pretty much answered there. But I wonder, what is it that helps you select, Okay, here's what I'm going to focus on next? I imagine it's a combination of that mercenary mentality of, okay, well, this pays well versus, hey, I'm really passionate about this. And I imagine you try to almost do like one for them, one for me or try to balance a few different things at once.
1: I would love to be able to do one for them, one for me. (laughs) Um, 17 for them, one for you, maybe. This is going to sound maybe whiny and privileged, but I I don't have that opportunity these days because usually a lot of really good gigs fall in my lap, right? Um, And I don't mean to whine about that at all. And certainly I understand that it's – this is a lot of things that happen. If you're a longtime freelancer, you start out as a freelancer, which I did. uh, You never want to say no to anything because you never know when the next opportunity is going to come along, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And so when somebody comes and says, I get this great gig for you, and you're like, wow, that is great. I don't, I don't I don't, want to say no to that. So I'll push off those personal things for a while because I know those are personal things. And I'm not going to disappoint anybody but really myself, especially if I haven't announced them yet, right? Uh, so the only person that's going to be down about the fact that Brave New World does not come back. I do have some fans write me pretty regularly about it. But you know, I say, well, as soon as I can get to it, and I will get to it hopefully before I die, right? Um, but in the meantime, uh, you know, Minecraft called up and they want a Minecraft Dungeons novel, right? And, uh, I'm a big, I like the people at Mojang. I've, I've gone out and I've had beers with them and dinners with them. And I'd like the people at Microsoft and they're wonderful people. And the people at Del Rey are great folks as well. And I'm like, well, that seems like a pretty good opportunity to write a novel that a lot of people are going to read and kids are going to enjoy and to do something with people I like to work with. So I think I'm going to do that for a few months as opposed to working on Brave New World or Shotguns and Sorcery or whatever.
0: And that came out earlier in the
1: summer? It came out in, yeah, July, was it July? I think it was July, July 7th. Okay. So, And that was a whirlwind. I mean, they contacted me like last September, I think, and said, hey, we need you working on this. And the manuscript is due in, in January, and the book will be out in July, which – in traditional publishing terms, is just the, uh, as light speed, right? It just never goes that fast. Wow! So it was—it it came out. It was fine. To, it's got. Um, last I checked, it had seventy-seven reviews on Amazon at a four-point-eight average, which is pretty good. I guess. And, um, okay. And I'm pretty proud of it. It was, it was a good, fun book. My editor gave me one of the best compliments I've had from an editor. Uh, he said, "Oh, when I turned in the manuscript, he said, oh, my God, you have! We gave you spreadsheets, and you turned it into art.'" I'm like, thank you. That's nice. What I want to hear. Congratulations on that. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, it's it's a Minecraft Dungeons novel for kids. It's not high arts by any sense, right? But that doesn't mean you don't put your heart into it. You don't put your craft into it. You don't put some pride into it. You really want to uh, make sure that anybody's putting down their money for your work at any point is getting something that they deserve, right? They've paid for your time and effort. You're going to give them as much of that honestly as you possibly can.
0: And you've written for the young adult audience quite quite a bit. I think you were doing the Endless Quest books and, and right. the Rogue One story, I believe, for Star Wars was more young adult themed.
1: Yeah, and that's, re- that's actually one of the reasons I got the call to do the, the Rogue One novelization for the junior novel is because, uh, you know, the number of people who can write military science fiction and chapter or young adult or chapter books for kids or however you want to put it, middle grade stuff. Uh, that's a fairly small Venn diagram crossover, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to uh, be in that spot. And also the editor at Lucasfilm happened to be uh, somebody who, I, uh, who was best friends with the editor I had written the Halo novels for. So she knew I could do the work and I would turn it on time and it was easy to work with and all that kind of stuff. So if you hang around the industry long enough, any industry really, and you do good work and you develop a decent reputation, people eventually come to you with the projects, right? And I've gotten to a point now where I don't normally have to look for work. It'll just come to me, which is a wonderful position to be in. But again, it means that I, often my own personal projects tend to fall by the wayside.
0: It sounds like trying to drink out of a fire hose.
1: Yeah, you know, and that's kind of fun, actually. There's worse the problems to have, certainly. <laughs> no, it, again, these are gigs that when I was starting, I would have killed for Right? I would have said, oh, my God, this is life changing. And now you're like... Uh, oh, God, I got this offer. I got to, oh, ow. And you're know, like, yeah, I'm going to do it because it's too cool. How could I not? I actually wrote off doing tie-in novels like five years ago. I said, I'm done. I'm not going to do them anymore. And then uh, uh, then I, the guy who offered me the Halo novels came in. I'm like, oh, shucks. I love Halo. <laughs> so, sure. so, of course, I'm going to write Halo novels. Why Dive do you, in. You know, and then somebody offers you a Star Wars book. You're like, yeah, of course, I'm going to write a Star Wars book. So. So it's, again, it's a it's a wonderful problem to have. It is an issue, but it's still a wonderful thing. And I, I don't I try not to question my good fortune.
0: Yeah, circling back to the shotguns and sorcery for a bit because sure. you had you had indicated along the path that in terms of what game system it was going to use, uh, there were a few different stages of what it might be, and it, it uses the the cipher system. Right. And and I wonder as because you've been on both sides, you've been you know, writer game designer, and you, you talked about, you know, doing that for so long. How do you think the, the world of Dragon City, Shotguns, and Sorcery plays different with a group since it is in the Cypher system rather than something like D20, D&D?
1: I think the Cypher system differs in a couple of ways. Uh, the Cypher system is meant to be a player-facing system, right? And originally I came up with this as a D20 setting, which had been third edition Dungeons & Dragons. But um, it, uh, player-facing means that the Game Master... You know, basically sets up the, the story, and they, they run you through the story and everything, but the players do all the decision-making, they roll all the dice, everything's done by them. The Dungeon Master or the Game Master in the Cypher System case literally doesn't roll dice, right? The players do all the dice rolling, mm-hmm. uh, which is great for the, for the Game Master because it means the players are doing some of the work for you. Uh, and taking on that burden and allowing you to concentrate on the story stuff. But it also gives them a better sense of agency and control, which is something that, you know, as a game master, you obviously already have that because you're in charge, right? Uh, the players need to have that sense of, of agency. And I think the cipher system does a great job of doing that. Um, the one thing that really mechanically differed for moving over to the cipher system was that they use the, they have this economy for things called ciphers, literally, Right. Right. Um, and it's these little bits of magic that come in and out of your control, right? That you're meant to grab and then spend like candy, right? You're not meant to treasure them or hoard them or or save them up or anything. You're meant to say, oh, I get this cool thing. Let's use a boom. Because you know there will be more cool things coming, right? Right. And I like in the system them.
0: that you, you can only have so many, which exactly. gets away from my video game mentality of, oh, this is an item I should save. And then you finish the game and you have 99 of them.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you never right. use them. Yeah, yeah. We wanted to avoid that. We wanted to avoid the whole hoarding thing, and say, I mean, the whole point of this is we're going to give you fun things to play with. You should play with them, right? As opposed to you should put them on your shelf and and protect, you know, not take them out of the packaging. So uh, uh, that was uh, Rob Schwab, really, uh, who built that whole thing for us. And uh, you know, it comes from the original cipher system. Rob had already known the cipher system pretty solidly, so it was he was the right guy to do the translation for us. He was fantastic.
0: Yeah, and in the the rulebook, there's, I mean, pages of you know potential ciphers that the you know GM can dish out to the to the
1: players. Exactly, we wanted to make it you know a uh, a wealth of ideas, uh, you know, and just fun for people to play with, as opposed to making it, uh, you know, oh my god, you know, and also to make it kind of random. Like this is going to show up, you're going to enjoy it, and then move on. There'll be plenty of other things. Don't worry about it, right?
0: And speaking of the cipher system, one of the players who were Kind of finishing d and D campaign right now, and then I think we're going to transition into shotguns and sorcery, which is why I'm diving into the book. Very cool. She, she had asked a question because she's re- going through the Dragon City novels now, and she asked me to ask you how sure. would you how would you describe Max Gibson using the Cipher system in terms of kind of his role and background with those rules?
1: Well, he's a human. Well, the way they do it in the Cipher system is that you have you're a uh, person of a uh, race uh, with a Occupation, who does something right, who has a verb, right? So in this case, he would be a human investigator who looks for trouble, right? Uh, so and that I think kind of sizes up Max pretty well, right? He's he's very much all those things.
0: <laughs> and are there, you know, future endeavors for Max? Is this something that will continue in terms of writing his story?
1: Well, again, it's a matter of time for me more than anything else, but we do have some things in the works. Uh, one of the stretch goals for the uh, – uh, for well, actually, no, I take that back. It wasn't a stretch goal. The guys over at uh, at Outland who licensed the role-playing game for me also at one point had licensed the stories to do a new edition and a print edition uh, for a Shotguns and Sorcery Omnibus. And as part of that, I wrote a third story – a third short for them, which ended up being long enough to be a novella. And that's included in the Shotguns and Sorcery Omnibus that's out right now. That came out uh, I think in March of this year. Uh, and it's out. It's out. It's out as an ebook now too. Seeing it as an ebook, but you can buy it as a book. You can buy it as an ebook, and it comes to that story. I'm going to eventually release it uh, separately, but I just have to find the time to sit down, slap a cover on it, do all the Amazon and Kindle and everything else stuff that needs to go with it. Um, and so, hopefully, I'll be able to get to that soon. Also, uh, one of the stretch goals was for a comic book, so we have a 22 page comic book in the works that I have. I wrote the story for a long time ago now, and uh, I have seen all the artwork for uh, we have an artist whose name escapes me at the time that uh, uh, Jeremy Shannon, I think his name anyway, Jeremy the uh, Muller, who was the guy behind Outland. Uh, he commissioned all the artwork, got it all lined up. Uh, it's now got all the pencils and inks have been done. So now we're waiting on colors and lettering. And then we have a comic book. What do you know? Excellent. Yeah, it should be fun. Then we have to see how that's going to be released to the public because it'll end up reverting to me. I'll go to the Kickstarter backers and I have to see how I'm going to release it. If I'm just going to put it out through drive-through comics, comiXology. If I approach somebody like image or IDW who I know people at or however I want to do it. I mean, I wrote a year's worth of magic, the gathering comics for IDW at one point amongst other things. So uh, there are possible venues for this, but who knows who who wants to take on a one-shot comic book like that. So one of the things that I,
0: and I'll try to summarize the the setting. So please correct me if I'm sure. mistaken about anything. So the shotguns and sorcery dives in, and there's this collection of cultures, um, you know, humans, halflings, dwarves, elves, and this undead army swarms everybody. And the last refuge they all have is kind of taking up shelter in the shadow of this dragon, who pretty much controls this mountain. And they make a deal with the dragon, like, hey, we'll help you out, help us <laughs> save our lives from this undead army. They build up a huge wall around the mountain, and then everyone lives there kind of under the dragon's protection while the undead is roaming the land outside of the wall. So is, is that a fair summary of... No, I think that does very well. Yep. Dragon City? Okay, so a couple of things that I thought were kind of interesting choices. One... To my knowledge, and maybe I miss this, but I don't think the dragon or the leader of the undead army are named, or did I miss that?
1: They do not have names other than the Dragon Emperor and the Ruler of the Dead. Okay, that's what I thought.
0: That's what I thought. And the Ruler of the Dead, I believe, is presented as a, a female character. She is, yeah. Okay, um, so I thought that was interesting because that you know gives the players or the GM some agency in, in making some decisions with that, or just leaving it leaving it as is. The other thing I, I thought was really unique about Shotguns and Sorcery, especially in light of some recent conversations other game systems are having about race and how that's handled in terms of stats and how it's how races are presented in game settings, is Shotguns and Sorcery It's one of the first bullet points under the world. There's a section titled Racism, and yep. the world um, Dragon City is literally a hierarchy of the higher up the mountain you are, the higher your status, the higher your class. And it really is based that elves are at the top, then there's dwarves and then gnomes and humans, and it's kind of, or halflings. And it's it's literally tiered in terms of the races as they live in Dragon City. And it's you know pretty overt in the book that the races do not like each other that much. And that everyone kind of looks down upon the... And you even have a section about the the greenies, so goblins, orcs, hobgoblins, and, and creatures like that who live in Goblin Town, which is this, it sounds like a very slum, gang-ridden environment. And it was interesting to me to just be reading through it and be like, okay, wow, this is somebody who's writing this game very much pushing racism as an idea of like, yeah, this exists in the world. And I... I guess to go back, maybe repeating a question I asked a little bit earlier, like why was that important to you to to have that?
1: That's a good question. I think, and I understand what you're asking. I mean, uh, it's interesting that this game came out about the time that Wizards of the Coast and Pies were starting to look and say, maybe races are not a good idea, right? Maybe we want to talk about people as individuals, as characters, as opposed to as members of races. And I totally am behind that. And if I was writing this game today, I probably wouldn't be making the choices I made Five, 10 15 20 years ago right however uh, to me one of the things that you know, that are intricate or integral to Tolkien's uh, fantasy and tolkien-esque fantasy is the racism and I think it's one of those things that people don't generally talk about I think they tend to avoid it right because uh, it's an uncomfortable topic and but it's certainly there I mean it's it's not even Hidden. It's right there. Just it's people tend to gloss over it, and to me, I thought that was an important topic, especially when you're talking about a large city where all these people have been forced together and they're not just in different regions. How would that look, and what would that do to them, and how would that play out, right? Uh, and I thought that rather than trying to ignore it and turning a blind eye to it, that we should spotlight it. And I'm not trying to say that uh, racism is fun. That's certainly not the message I'm intending here, right? Um, but I do think that it's something that's worth exploring and and uh, interacting with. I also think it's something that features very strongly in noir stories. If you read any noir stories, there are some. Uh, you know, there's you know, a lot of them are set in New York City or in Los Angeles during the '30s and '40s, or even the '20s and '50s, whatever. But these are areas. These are times that are soaking in overt racism, right? And I thought that uh, being true to that would be exploring that and not flinching away from it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that one of the things that really struck me about this, it, 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 part of it is racism, but also it's about uh, the longevity of the races, which are metaphors for essentially uh, the hand mean, handing down of generational wealth, mm-hmm. right? So, for instance, the elves are people who live nearly infinite lives, and that is basically like a the aristocracy that just hands down wealth, from generation to generation, right? Okay. And... Uh, like Legacy families, things like that. Exactly. Aristocracy, legacy families, oligarchs, all this kind of stuff, right? And people who are not able to do that, if you look at what has been done in America with redlining for instance, where uh, African-Americans were not allowed to live in certain parts of cities. We're not even allowed to get loans to buy houses, and we're not able to uh, take advantage of the GI Bill after World War II. We're not able to build up any sense of generational wealth in what was the biggest uh, economic boom in history and have been cheated out of that. Uh, Those are people that are, in in terms of this, they're short timers because they can't manage to build up any kind of wealth. It's a system that's been engineered against them, right? And in that sense, I was trying to metafor- uh, make this into a metaphor to show this, how this is actually what the metaphor means. And this is what the kind of effect it's had as it's applied to a more modern society. And shotguns and sorcery for me, Dragon City was always like, what if you took your typical Tolkienes thing, advanced it a thousand years and saw what it would do evolutionarily, and evolutionary, how that society would evolve, essentially, within that kind of setting and what kind of injustices would be brought to the fore. So believe me, I am certainly not endorsing any of that stuff, but I also don't think that it's something that we should ignore and pretend doesn't exist. Now, if people – and here's part of it too is I was doing this in stories, right? I didn't intend for this originally to be – when I started developing – originally it was a game idea, but I wasn't really concentrating on this stuff. It came out in the stories, and this is something I wanted to emphasize in the stories. Mm -hmm. If people don't want to play with racism in their games or explore that because – you know, shit, they have to deal with it on a real life regular basis. I totally understand that, right? I'm not I'm not encouraging anybody to make themselves miserable to play a game. But if they want to learn something about themselves and the society that they're in and they don't already know this stuff, like most oppressed people already do, this might be a way for them to do that. One of the neat things about science fiction and fantasy is it allows people to examine things, problems in their current society, uh, from a distance, right? Uh, all science fiction is written about the current day that you're in, but using a lens that allows you to disassociate yourself from the current problems and look at them with a little, with a bit more distance than you normally could through the lens of metaphor. And that's essentially what I was trying to do. Mm-hmm. I hope it comes across that way. I hope nobody's offended because I certainly wasn't trying to do that. Right. I was trying to open up the conversation as opposed to advocate for something stupid
0: well that, that is, i you know i appreciate you having the willingness to have this conversation and as we were going back and forth just trying to s- schedule a time to, to have this conversation you know one of the things as i was going through the book was it was a little eyebrow raise and i was like huh okay uh there's there's a section on racism that's interesting uh, so yeah, well i <laughs> wanted to ask about it but i at the same time i was because it's, it's a, a clearly a sensitive topic I just said, hey, would this be okay to get into? And you said, absolutely, this is uh, something that should be talked about. And I just want to acknowledge that we, well, not for me, but I mean, we're both white males from similar generations. And, you know, it'd be interesting. And I don't know if you've had these conversations with with persons of color. Is there are persons who have been disenfranchised in the United States? Like you're talking about redlining and through policies have been pushed aside or pushed down and in shotguns and sorcery there's sections in the book where it puts it in your face it's like hey this is happening and it's hard not to think like well heck yeah this is happening (laughs) and it sounds like that was very intentional on your your part
1: no i meant to do it i mean and if you look at the stories and a lot of the things in there too they're talking about uh how uh the uh, the wealthy people managed to hire in people to be their police officers and then are part they're propping up a corrupt and decadent society. Uh, obviously, I'm so showing my uh, my political roots here, right? I, 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 but again, I'm, I'm not trying to shove that in anybody's face. Uh, I wrote Brave New World, which is about as you know, in, in a very real sense, is a liberal the role playing game. Uh, is right. a is a very liberal. Uh, centered game, but you know what? There's. I also try to say, look, if you want to be on the conservative side, of it, here's the other side of that argument, right? Mm-hmm. That that game is all about what kind of rights are you willing to give up in order to feel safe, right? And that's a legitimate conversation that I think the country should be having. Any country should be having on an ongoing basis. And uh, I wrote that came out in 1999. The 9/11 happened almost 20 years ago now. Um yes. wow. where, uh, where, where you know, suddenly the conversation swang way in the other direction, right? Um, so I'm not afraid to tackle these kind of political topics in games. I think that's one of the things that entertainment should be for. It should just be hollow-headed. I'm going to go kick down the door, kill the orcs, and take the treasure type stuff, right? um and I think entertainment in general should be that way right um, but you know, i'm not, I, again it's a game you have your option you can play it however you want you can play it without any of the politics you can play it from i 'm the jackbooted thug going in and you know clearing out the areas I think you're appalling if you do that but uh, you, know, but you right. can certainly do that if you want
0: well, well no, it, it's interesting you talk about you know this and you know i've been following on Twitter for a little while and pretty open about uh being like progressive liberal and you know, I, I kind of sh- share a lot of those sensibilities. And then reading through the game, I was like, huh, this is an interesting juxtaposition. Like, I, And I was genuinely curious, like, I wonder how this all fits together. So I really appreciate you kind of giving voice to that. And I, I'm curious, you know, as a creator, somebody who is, you know, writing novels, putting out games, designing things, selling things, and also being quite transparent about your political leanings uh, through social media, what type of response have you gotten? Has it been both sides? Has has it gotten kind of ugly at times? What what has been your experience?
1: Uh, I, I actually don't get hassled all that much. I'm sure it's because I'm a, a white cis head, et etc male, right? So um, there's there's quite a bit of privilege for both of us. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and that means that I've kind of got my own uh, you know, privilege armor or whatever that goes through, and, and a lot of shit just bounces off. Or people probably look at me and say that's not somebody we want to mess with. We should go pick on somebody who's not going to be who's not as uh, defensible, right? Or not he doesn't have that kind of armor. We want to pick on people who don't have the armor, and you know that's because they're cowards at their hearts. Uh, but I, if they want to pick on me, that's fine. I'm not afraid of them. But I, maybe it's because I've been open about this stuff for decades now. My politics are not secret. I, I don't go around proselytizing. Again, I, 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 prefer rather, I would rather make my points through my art. Uh, on the other hand, I'm also somebody who's not afraid to go stand in a protest and march in a parade. And uh, you know, I bring my kids to protest. You know, we do this stuff together as a family, and I grew up doing this stuff. I think you need to stand up for people who uh, maybe don't have the ability to stand up for themselves. I'm sure at some point I'm going to be too old and, and uh, feeble to do this kind of stuff, and I hope – other people are standing up for, for these things at that point too. So um, I, I think you know it's hard to be a creator and not be political. The People who say you need to take politics out of art, they're just lying to themselves. All art is political. Uh, if you're being silent about something, you're essentially consenting to the status quo. And if, uh, if that's invisible to you, it's because you haven't looked very hard.
0: Well, and one thing that I found interesting in reading the rule book, and I mean, I, you created Max Gibson – Ten plus years ago, that right. that Max is a human, but is someone who's dark skinned, yeah. And you know, you're writing that character as as a white male, and is that something that's ever been you know commented on from from people? Or? Yeah, I
1: don't know how many people have noticed that. I mean, in the, in the stories, I actually don't talk about his skin tone at all, right? Um, uh, mostly because I my feeling, and it actually says that I think in one of the books uh, in the game that uh, when it comes to uh, skin color. But for within the race, people don't pay as much attention to it because they have other bigger markers, signifiers that they pay attention to. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, but on the other hand, I think there's probably an undercurrent where Max is a rebel and, and uh, maybe doesn't fit in with his even his own human community as much because he stands out. Right. I don't know. Um I guess I could think about it more and give you an answer, but because it's my story, for God's sake. But uh, in my mind, Max's dad, who's uh, uh, part of the Wizards College, the Academy of Arcane uh, uh, apprentices uh, Academy of Arcane Apprentices, he's a, a white, gray-haired, balding uh, middle management dude, and his mother was the dark-skinned person, right? And again, they don't mention it in the books because it's. it's not something that's remarkable in the books. But when we were illustrating it, I specifically wanted to the, Jeremy, I said, Max is mixed race, right? Uh, from our from our point of view, he would be uh, uh, a mixed race African-American type guy. Um, and that's all I want you to make him. I want you to color him like that. I want you to draw him like that. I want you to portray him like that. And they did a good job of it. I think they've been fairly consistent about that. Uh, and I also made sure that, you know, we tried to represent just not – Uh, You know, dark skinned people, but uh, Asian people and other people throughout the book as well. And I'm not sure how consistent we are about that, because honestly, everybody, especially when you're doing these kind of fantasy things, if you don't, if you're not specific with the artist and whoever else is working on the stuff at any time, uh, the default tends to be, you know, straight white dude, right? Um, or, or kind you know, of the, the or,
0: classical or, fantasy tropes and
1: images. Yeah, that, exactly, right? They go They go for your, your King Arthur dude or your Aragorn dude or the chick in the chainmail bikini or whatever, right? And unless you're actively as an art director saying, no, this needs to look like this, that's the kind of things you get. I actually, I think the artwork in Shotguns and Sorcerer is excellent. I think it, it gives a variety of different skin colors. I think it gives a variety of different uh, racial structures in, the, in uh, the, the faces and such as well. I also think the people are, are, are well-dressed and appropriately dressed for what they're doing. They, uh, I think it's, it's meant in fun, but it's also meant to try to be representative, right? Yeah, I don't I, know how successful we are. I'd have to go back through and actually look. The, that uh, is the uh, intent at every point yeah minutes. and I think
0: the, the artwork and you were talking about this kind of Venn diagram of, of genres that came together in this world it as I was going through it it's sort of dick Tracy meets Game of Thrones meets Dungeons and dragons
1: yeah um, exactly
0: where these things come together and yeah I in terms of the sexism or anything like that in the artwork I, I that that didn't, I, there was no eyebrows raised about that. I think the artwork good. was very really,
1: good. I think that was another point. point. You're, you're, exactly. I think we tr- we strove to do that very well. Jeremy, I think, has been on that page forever. So.
0: But yeah, maybe just to tie a bow on this this conversation about race and how racism is treated in, in Shotgun and Sorcery. Um, and as a GM, who's, I mean, I'm going to be the person, uh, hopefully running the game here within the next uh, few weeks or few months for, for my group. I, I think there does have to be a little bit of a conscious decision of, well, what am I going to do with this? And not just the GM, but also with whoever your players are. I th- And I know there's a lot of talk about having a session zero or talking with players before a campaign starts to get their expectations of what type of game do they want. What do yeah. they, that, that yeah. I, I think it would be a useful thing to discuss with the group about, you know, is, is this something you want to touch on? I, I mean, because I could see, you know, myself kind of laying the groundwork for... You know what? This campaign is going to be about social justice. Right. Exactly. (laughs) That's going to be that could be a theme that if you choose to focus on, it's there. And if you want to ignore it, that's fine. But you could with a group say, you know what, we don't feel comfortable with that or it's not really my cup of tea and say, well, let's just focus on the the undead versus dragon and leave it leave it at that. I don't know. Like, how have you seen groups approach that with the system, with your game?
1: Well, you know it's interesting because you know generally players don't report into me, <laughs> um, but uh, I think it's absolutely essential. And honestly, if I'd been writing this five years, I wrote it five years ago. If I've been writing it today, uh, I certainly would have included stuff about uh, you know there are safety uh, safety kits that we now have for, dungeon, for all sorts of different games. Mm-hmm. Monico Game does games actually does a very good one. If people are interested in looking that up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I was just reading Fiasco the other day, too. Fiasco is a very wonderful game by Jason Morningstar and his friends. And uh, it's about uh, violent people with poor impulse controls, a game masterless game, uh, kind of like a Tarantino movie, right? Or a Coen Brothers movie. Right. I played it once uh, or twice. It's, yeah, it's, it gets a little uh, out there sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it can. And one of the neat things that they added to this new edition of it is they have a, a Let's Not card. Right? And it sits there in front of each one of the players. And if one of the other players says something that just pushes them in the wrong direction or, tr- or triggers them off or you know, they're just not comfortable with, all you have to do is tap the let's not card and you stop. And you have a conversation and talk about it. Uh, or people just back off and organically move in the, another direction. Right? Um, but I think in any game, starting out, it doesn't even matter. It doesn't have to be about the topics and themes or whatever else. Um, you, know, you should talk about what kind of a game you want to play. Right, because uh, a lot of it is a lot of any entertainment experience is about whether or not you're fulfilling expectations or or exceeding them or ignoring them. Right, and if you're if you, you want to have everybody in the group to be on the same page because you're all playing together to have fun, right? And if every you know if half the group wants to have this serious dramatic adventure, the other half the group wants to have a slapstick goofy Python adventure, you're gonna grate on each other constantly. <laughs> Even in something exactly. as simple as that, right? right. So I, not to mention, you know, whether or not you're going to get into social issues or sexism or whatever else, uh, uh, or you know, maybe like you know, we had an incident in the gaming industry last year where a fairly famous creator did a, a live stream where one of the characters got raped, right? And without warning anybody, and you're yeah, like, I'm
0: aware of that. that? Yeah, saw that.
1: Why the? You be, this is something you could easily solve by making sure that you have. Guardrails on this kind of shit, or at least have a conversation ahead of time. Right? Um, you should never spring that kind of stuff on people on you know, by surprise. It's ridiculous. Uh, uh, I mean, hell, you wouldn't want that to happen in a movie you were watching. All of a sudden, it happens. You're like, what? 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 You know, I thought I was watching, you know, uh, this, and I got that. What the hell happened? Yeah. Yeah, you walk think- into a comedy, and suddenly you're in the middle of the red wedding. <laughs> right? How did we get here? Exactly.
0: Um, no, and I, I think that that incident. I know exactly what you're talking about. And and to me, like I I haven't really gotten into the streaming culture, just time, and uh, it's, it's probably not a talent I have. I'm kind of more interested in doing like these one-on-one podcasts, and that's something that that interests sure. me, having these conversations. But like it was to me just a lot on display, not only about that kind of safety issue, but the power that a GM a DM has yeah. uh, over the players, especially when it's streaming and there's an audience and there's you're selling something it, it it was like a lot of new stuff in this role-playing game hobby that it's like a lot of bad factors that came together at once yeah um and my hope is that people learn from that and that i mean that's sort of stuff should not be happening uh in home games or streaming games um, but yeah this is the whole culture of streaming and it's uh it's sort of the wild west at times so I, it's it's good that monty cook and other people are Putting out education, I know my end, like myself, there's other psychologists who are you know, pretty prominently involved in tabletop games and putting out videos and articles and education on here's how to take care of each other. Right. Like, we're all having fun. And what can we do to be proactive to make sure these kinds of things don't happen? And I think one of the things that is useful is checking in with players ahead of time of, and you mentioned that, like, <laughs> let's not card. like Right everyone that comes to a table or comes to a stream, comes to a, an online game, probably has something different that's a third rail they don't want to get into. And finding out what those are so you can make sure the game doesn't go there is is important.
1: No, I agree. I mean, honestly, it's as simple as like often when I do a podcast, I'll say, by the way, before we start, is this G, P, G, or R, right? Right. And you're, you bleeped the one time I swore here pretty badly. But no, oh, that's and right. And I think that, but yeah, that's a conversation that's a, not a bad thing for for anybody who's involved to bring up at a time. And I should have, and I forgot this time. Um, but people forget sometimes, right? But then your default situation should be G, right? If you don't know what the answer is, you should be careful about what you're doing, as opposed to being extravagant and crazy about it, right? Um, if you're like, the similar event happened at a convention last year where somebody. Uh, suddenly, spring a rape scene on people who are playing a game with a guy they'd never met before, right? Because it's a convention game, and you're like, "What? What the hell? Did what made you think this was a good idea?" Right? Right. Um, yeah, if you're playing with people you don't know, if you're doing something that's fresh, and, and you're you're trying, and you haven't explored these ideas ahead of time, or haven't talked about it ahead of time, the default should be be as clean and careful as you can be, right? Assume that your mother is behind you watching you. So. <laughs> Absolutely, well,
0: I, I thoroughly appreciate your time. One of the things I wanted to, to end with: what kind of support? What is maybe coming next for Shotguns and Sorcery? Now that the rule book's out,
1: been out now for for about a year. Uh, well, yeah, it's out for not quite a year to the backers. I think it's been about like, oh god, it is getting toward year um This year has been a, just a time warp. So yeah, uh, I know it's insane. Uh, but it actually came out to the public on July 15th or whatever. I just, I, It was one of those things, again, where I'm like, you know, if I don't put this out, I'm going to sit on it forever. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just going to put it out. And I didn't do a very good job marketing it or anything like that because I'm like, you know, I can either get the entire plan in place and have it all happen. It'll happen three years from now. Or I can just put it out now and, and uh, see what the heck happens. So I decided to do that. Um, uh, my son, my eldest son, just graduated from college. And he's actually helping. Thank you. Uh, he, Marty is helping me work on some of these things because I don't have as much time as I need. So that's actually been quite a boon. I'm able to slough some of this stuff to him and also teach and guide him as we go along. Nice. Uh, so he has uh, just completed work on, the, uh, on Monsters and Mean Streets, which is a monster and character book and uh, you know, we're doing some editing on it right now. We have all the artwork in place and the layout, rough layout done, and hopefully if I can get some time scraped together to finish the layout, it'll be out, uh, be ready to backers hopefully within a month or so. Uh, I hesitate to promise anything at this point because everything gets crazy. Um, it's tentative, tentative. Yeah, tentatively, right. There you go. Good work. Um, we have uh, a Pathfinder conversion that we promised in the Kickstarter that Marty also wrote, and I just hired... This hasn't been announced yet anywhere, but I just and I, since it's my thing, I can announce it. Whatever, but I just hired Owen Casey Stevens to help to edit that for me. And Owen's Owen used to work for Paizo and knows Pathfinder backwards and forwards, so he'll do a really good job of making sure that's perfect for us. Um, and then we have the comic book coming out. We're going to have a couple of decks of cards that uh, go with characters and monsters. Jeremy already did the artwork for that, and the only thing that was holding that up is I needed page numbers for the references on the cards. And because they do this with like Numenera and The Strange and other Cypher System games. Uh, So now that I've got Monsters and Mean Streets, as soon as it's laid out entirely and and set in stone, then I can use those page numbers, print them on the cards, and those can come out. Uh, Marty's also got an adventure that uh, apparently uh, the previous publisher thought it was only going to be this many words and turns out it needed twice as many words Okay, (laughs) because they promised a 32-page adventure and it came out to like, 22 pages or or came out to like 16 pages instead so uh so marty's going back to uh, add more to that and we're working on that and that'll hopefully be done toward the end of the year beginning of next year Uh, so there are other things in the works and you know i assuming people like it and they're interested in other stuff they can uh either you know obviously you make up your own stuff in your home game as much as you humanly want i've actually thought about opening up this uh the the setting for people to develop in but i haven't made a whole lot of headway there because again just too much too many other things to do. Um but assuming people like and they want more, we will do our best to deliver more. And you know, if it turned out to be tons of stuff, I would say, Marty, guess what? You got a full time job now and right. good luck to you. Congratulations. <laughs> exactly. You better start swimming, kid. You're in the deep end now. Get back into the
0: salt mines. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, how can people buy shotguns and sorcery? How can they check out your stuff? Like what what's the best way for them to learn about all this cool stuff that you've been talking about?
1: Well, shotguns and sorcery is uh, there. We did. I just. I made the decision not to go into the trade, so to speak. So it's not available in stores because to do that, I would have to do go out and print another five thousand books, sell them to distributors, which would then sell them to stores, which would then. You know, when you sell a book to a distributor, you actually only get forty percent of the cover price of a book as a publisher, right? Um, and I'm like, you know. I don't know that there are that many stores left in America selling role playing games that are going to justify me doing this. And I don't really want to risk my kids' college tuition on this at the moment. So, because um, I had four kids, those quadruplets I was talking about, just went off to college here in uh, this month. So, uh, and most of them are staying at home because no the, wonder uh, you're writing 50,000 words an hour. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, we got a lot of people to put through school now. So, um, so uh, I, those are not available in stores. So, if you want to buy them, uh, the easy way is to go to drivethroughrpg.com, which is the biggest PDF seller in the entire industry. You can also buy them directly uh, from me at fourback.com if you want the PDF. They have print-on-demand versions also available through Drive-Thru RPG, So you can get a print version still. And they actually come out. We use the Deluxe Color hardback. They come out looking very nice. Okay. Um, and I still have about 90 copies of the original print run left. And I didn't want to bother with setting up a storefront and charging sales tax and all that kind of stuff. So I just put them on eBay uh, as, you know, it's uh, so all 90 of them are on eBay. And as people buy them, it's a it's a set price kind of a thing. You don't have to bid on them or anything. You Send your money. We send it to you. If you buy it on eBay, I'll toss in a PDF for free. And also because they're in my garage, I will literally hand pack them myself. And if you want them <laughs> signed, I will sign and dedicate it to you on the way out the door. So.
0: And, and free up some space in your garage.
1: Exactly. My, my wife would appreciate that. So. These, are, these are the important things. That, you know, uh, the funny part is, this is all it all. it's like, oh, it's entertainment, it's glossy, it's glorified. Yeah, no, it's really a bunch of guys stuff
0: in your garage. So, <laughs> excellent. Well, thank you again for your time. Thank you for creating this world for people to go play in. And at the same time, I, I think it also does, you know, based on some of the things we talked about here today, could give people some things to think about and maybe act upon both in the game world and in the real world as well so
1: that's my hope my fervent desire and again play it however you want it's your game it's your house uh you play it whatever you want to do but yeah you know, i'm going to still create the kind of things i think that hopefully will engender conversations and uh some forethought so. excellent well best of luck to you and all the future endeavors and to your family Thank you very much. It was a wonderful conversation. Oh, thank you. Great. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Take care.